Hello everybody, welcome to our virtual 67 Palmal. Today we're very pleased to welcome back our old friend Jasper Morris, MW, author of Inside Burgundy, who will be talking about vine age in Burgundy, about VAV wines and really concentrating on six amazing Burgundies, all made from vines planted before the Second World War. So please chat away on the side, share us what you're drinking and where you're drinking it from as usual, and put your photos on social media with hashtag 67 from home. As usual, we'll have 15 minutes at the end to ask Jasper any questions, I'm sure you will do throughout, and we will do a poll of your favourite wines. And a big welcome back, as always, to Jasper. How are you, Jasper? I'm very well, thank you, Ronan. You haven't seen you for a while. No, no, well, the club's been open, so I've been busy with stuff and, you know, well, my American oh. friends have been keeping me fairly busy. <laughs> all right, well, that's all good news. Um, <laughs> but yes, we uh, <coughs> lovely to see you. Yeah, well, we have one bit of bad news uh, tonight, that my samples haven't arrived. So I hope that the rest of you have got yours, those of you who signed up for them. And uh, I'll be looking to you to make a few comments about the wines as we go through. I'm so, sure your encyclopedic knowledge, well, Jasper, you, you don't concept. need What's to that? taste them. Your encyclopedic knowledge, you don't need to taste them. You can just... Uh, exactly, I'll do remote, uh, remote tasting. Uh, what I've done instead is I pulled out a bottle of um, uh, the Bouzeron from uh, Domaine de uh, Vilaine, 2018, because this has got some vines planted as far back as 1903. Uh, so that will be uh, uh, my attempt to join in. Um, I think um, Robin's on the side that she didn't get wine one, and I understand that uh, that wine didn't arrive at 67 pound miles, so I don't think anybody would have got it. Uh, but I understand also that you won't have been charged for it. Um, I will talk about that wine anyway, because it's one I particularly like. And uh, I looked in my cellar this evening to see if I had an example of it, and I've got three vintages of that wine, but unfortunately they're all in magnums, and I didn't feel I could justify in these lockdown days, uh, cracking open a magnum. Um, so that's where we are. Um, the idea of ancient vines then, um, we use it almost as a truism, can be a bit lazy about it sometimes, but the concept is, is that if you have really old vines, you're likely to make better wine. And we can explore that as we go along. We'll have a few wines to uh, to try. Obviously what we won't have is the same vineyard, one bottling from really old vines and one from young vines. Um, so we're just going to have to try and imagine it. But we can talk about the principle of the thing. And let's start back in really, really old times. Um, so pre-Phloxra, up until the 1870s, 1880s, um, and a few did survive a bit longer after that, when uh, the vines were planted uh, without rootstocks. So the way it happened is that the moment that you decided you wanted to plant up a vineyard, you would put some holes in the ground, you put your vines into those holes, and then if something died, uh, you would continue by taking an existing vine, what's called in French provignage, in English it's layering, and you would put that uh, vine, you, you, you take a shoot, you would put it underground and let it come up again the other side, and the bit that was underground would then um, spread a few roots of its own, and you would have a new plant alongside the original one, taking the place of, of something that had gone missing and died. The only problem with that is it doesn't take all that long before the entire area under the soil is just a mass of roots, and they don't necessarily go down all that deep on that basis. 
And apparently when the last vineyards, uh, Romani Conti and Richbourg were ripped out by Duende Romani Conti, uh, just immediately after the Second World War, they did find underneath that it was just a complete jumbled up mass of roots everywhere. So um, that, that was then, uh, and I would think pretty much the very last in Burgundy of any pre vines uh, would have finished by the 1940s. And most of them, of course, had to be replanted immediately after the dreaded phylloxera. So what happened then was because the phylloxera was eating all the roots, killing off the vines, uh, the only way around it, after their various attempts, which included uh, flooding the vineyards, but the plants don't like that, which included dousing them in some form of petrol type product, which also the plants didn't like, uh, nor, nor the taste of the wine. It included taking the phylloxera bag to the cathedral in Autun and excommunicating it, but uh, it was not sufficiently religious to take that to heart, but that didn't work, uh, and so on and so forth. It included humans urinating all over the vineyards, but there were some uh, <laughs> dubious byproducts from that too. Nothing really worked until people discovered that the American vines were resistant to the phylloxera, didn't like the taste of them, whatever. And so after that point, it became uh, standard, even though to begin with, the American rootstocks were outlawed by, by decree because people didn't want invaders from uh, outside France. Um, but eventually people did realize that's what you had to do. So what you do is um, you take a cutting from the rootstock and onto that you graft a cutting from the quality vine that you really want, uh, put the two together and plant them in the ground. You could do it actually by growing a rootstock and as it comes up above the surface, then doing the graft there in the field but that's uh, much more labor intensive and with a higher failure rate. So in practice, that's hardly done. Jean-Marc Rouleau has been experimenting with that in his uh, Marcel Luce. He's experimenting with three types of grafting uh, in three different blocks that he's recently replanted uh, in the Marcel Luce. The only problem is he's chosen the rootstock 16149C which is letting us all down. I'll touch on, on that again a little bit later. So you've got your rootstock uh, and then you've got your vine plant above that and uh, they grow and they grow and uh, ideally your roots start going downwards. Now, if you irrigate, which of course you're not allowed to do in France and I think most of the rest of Europe, uh, then there's gonna be surface water and your roots will be lazy and they won't bother to go downwards will probably spread sideways, which is one of the reasons why you might want to do a bit of plowing, whether by uh, a tractor or an actual plow, or just by with a, with a pioche, with a pickaxe, which would have been the old fashioned way of doing it. Uh, and that, um, as well as loosening the soil uh, and getting rid of weeds, is also going to break up your surface roots that you don't want. So your roots now obliged to go down, and there are some people with underground cellars, I can think of Domain Ponceau as one, where a long way underground, you can actually see traces of the vine roots coming down uh, in the rock. Uh, they've got one wall of the cellar, which is naked rock, and down it comes. Good. Um, I wish I were in Suffolk with you, Peter, drinking the 2002 uh, uh, Massa from Fichet. Right. Um, so then 
if we look through the life um, of the individual vine and see how long it might perhaps last, um, it goes in the ground and frankly, uh, the, uh, the, the wisdom of the old people is that having ripped out your previous vineyard, you should leave the land fallow for a minimum of five and preferably seven years so that all trace of virus and nematodes and anything else you don't want has disappeared. You, you've given the soil a proper chance to rest and you can put in a cover crop, an annual cover crop if you wish, or grow potatoes or something. Um, hardly anybody does that now. Some of them even plant in the same year that they're ripping out, big mistake. Some of them leave it a year or two, even that's not enough. Um, though it is true that there are now some cover crops which are supposed to kill off any virus carrying nematode worms, but I'm not sure how much I trust that. Um, and the good people do still wait five or even seven years, um, but it's now no longer the norm. So in goes your vine, and these days it becomes Appalachian Controle in its third year. Uh, you're allowed to water it before then because anything outside Appalachian Controle isn't covered by the uh, anti-irrigation rules. Uh, so while you're establishing your plant, you can actually feed it some water. Um, but then once it's had its third leaf, as they call it, you can no longer irrigate and you get a small crop off that third year. You actually don't want to let your vine set too much of a crop when it's very young because it's going to uh, damage its strength if it's having to uh, look after all its fruit rather than building up its own resources. So most people, if a bit of crop, bit too much crop sets, they might actually deliberately thin it, or they'll prune very short to minimize the number of bunches. Often that very first year, you get an absolutely delightful wine out of it. Partly it's a small crop, but there's just something about it, beginner's luck, if you like, and the wine is so floral and full of fruit and delicious that you think, wow, we, we, we've hit pay dirt here. And then years four through 10, 12, 15, uh, you don't get quite the same thing. The vine begins to produce as much as it wants. You do well to go on thinning it out. These vineyards you tend to need to pick very early because they ripen more quickly than the old vines do. And um, ideally, you perhaps don't want to sell it under the main name. If you've got a Premier Cru or a Grand Cru with old vines, you might do well to declassify it uh, so as to protect the, the quality and the image of your product. Once you get beyond 15 or let's say ideally 20 years, you can now say that the, the vine is doing its thing. It should be giving you something which is consistent, reliable, and reflects what the vineyard is. So your roots are beginning to go down um, and uh, uh, all's well with the world. As you get to 40, you can begin to start considering these to be old vines. There are no rules about it. The mention of Vievin on the label has absolutely no regulation at all. I'd be, pretty I'd be pretty upset in Burgundy if anybody started using it much before 40 years old. I can think of a couple of people who might start at 30, but, but for me, 40 is the moment when you start to get uh, a real sort of uptick in the, in the quality. You seem to get more concentration of flavor and you're probably still getting a decent yield. After that, it's a law of increasing quality against diminishing returns. Uh, so once your vines get seriously old, they begin to lose energy. They typically have fewer bunches, smaller grapes. Uh, it's not invariable. You get some totally healthy vines that are 80 to 100 years old, still giving a decent crop. And in fact, 
I know that in 2018, um, the Fichet Massa Griache gave uh, a, a full yield. Uh, and even in other years, uh, when it's not quite so generous, uh, it still gives a respectable yield enough for um, Jean-Philippe Fichet to be happy to uh, keep going with it. These are vines planted in 1928. Um, but as you have all discovered, uh, that wine didn't manage to get circulated round, so you won't have it tonight, unfortunately. So we won't spend too much time on it. Um, various other things are going to come into play, because it depends on when your vines are planted. Uh, that's going to tell you, uh, sorry, that's going to influence what sort of rootstock and also what sort of uh, material the main vine is. So I'll come on to that in a second. I'm going to give myself a sip of the Bouzeron de Vilaine 2018. If you joined a little bit late, uh, I'll just reiterate the fact that unfortunately my wine samples didn't arrive at all, probably come tomorrow. Um, so I can't join you in tasting the wines. And as I come to, the, to discuss the wines which are on the sheet for this evening, I do hope that you'll be um, kind enough, those of you who have them, I hope you'll be kind enough to uh, give your comments on the wines. So uh, Peter can tell us how his 2002 Fichet uh, Griache is showing. Just a couple of words on Mr. Fichet and the Griache. Um, uh, Jean-Philippe Fichet is um, a twin brother with uh, Jean-Luc, uh, identical twins. I had met Jean-Luc in the street and said hi and started chatting to him. And he's looked at me blankly thinking, who is this fool? Uh, because really you can't tell them apart, um, uh, apart from a slight scar when Jean-Philippe fell off his bike. He was a biking fanatic uh, at one point. Um, and uh, Jean-Luc has, he's just sold it in fact, but he's got a business making material for winery sellers. You will see in loads of sellers, those of you who visit them, you will see uh, a sticker saying Fichet on the side of a tank or a, uh, a forklift truck or something else because he is the, the go-to uh, producer, small scale, um, based in Merceau, for uh, the region, for their material to run their wineries. Um, Jean-Philippe took over from his father, who didn't really bottle much himself. Um, he's connected distantly to the Koch-Dury family um, and various other families. Everybody is totally interlinked. And Renan, if you put up the Merceau map, I'll just show you where the Griache is. Right, um, so it's the usual story of, um, in the second edition of the book, I'm gonna change the color scheme so that we don't have sort of different variations of green or bluey green, but um, the pure green is uh, the Premier Cru uh, and the bluey green are the village vineyards. And you can see mostly they're further upslope or they're over in the Northern right-hand side of the village. And there are just a few under the Premier Cru's and Griash here makes a little bit of a triangle below Charm. I mean, if I'm in a strict mood, I would have cut Charm off here on that line, same line as the bottom of Genevrea de Sou, uh, because there is actually a fault line there. And I don't think Charm is of the same quality at that in that lower part. Uh, but anyway, Le Griash uh, makes a pretty decent village wine, particularly if it's as old as those wines are, 1928. Right, so we'll, uh, we can dispose of that map because uh, we don't actually have the wine to taste tonight. Um, 
and uh, you can put out the uh, the Chassin map when you're ready, uh, Ronan, and we will go on with that. So scattered all around, and I have started making a database of producers' vines. Uh, let's have a look at it on my home computer here. Uh, planted before uh, 1940, and looking at it now, I appear to have got about a hundred different uh, wines. Uh, in, in, in total, some more red than white, a couple of beige lays in there. Uh, the oldest reds I've got include one we're going to have tonight from 1902, 19, yes, 1901, 1902. And uh, the oldest whites, uh, Arno Arts, Merceau, La Sebe Duclos, that costs an arm and several arms and several legs these days. That dates back from the 1880s. Um, and really, they do only pick the individual vines that come from that age. Uh, and then I found one in the Maconnet from 1900. And uh, Thibault has got uh, some Moulin Vent from, he thinks, the 1870s or beginning of the 1880s. Um, Beaujolais seems to have quite a lot of old, really old vines. Right, I couldn't see you while I was looking at that, uh, but I hope you can continue to see me. Um, we'll continue to dig in from time to time into what it means to have these really old vines but I will introduce you to where this next wine is that you do have. Um, so it's a 2015 again, rich sunny vintage, uh, precursor of 18, 19 and 20, follower on from 2009, but with the advantage that by the time 15 came around, people had smartened up a bit and knew to pick early enough because the O9s were picked earlier, utterly gorgeous and white, and those that are picked a bit later uh, are fat and flabby and heavy. And in 15, the balance was a bit better. They're not really ready to drink yet. Um, uh, but on the whole, there should be a little bit of acidity, not too much there, but there should be enough. Right, I think I'm going to uh, go with my uh, heart system. Uh, so you'll see here, Les Verges, and we know this is called Close and Mark, but actually it is a subdivision within Les Verges, approximately where the heart is. Um, the various different clothes is the Clos Saint Abdon, Clos Saint Marc, um, as well as whole vineyards called uh, Clos Saint Jean, etc. Um, um, this vineyard is surrounded by both, um, well, it's a mix really of the usual stone walls that you see in uh, um, Burgundy, plus what they call merger, which are huge collections of stones. So when you have first planted this vineyard and you're trying to get the uh, wretched plants into the ground and you've got too many slabs of stones close to the surface, you just pull them out and you toss them, you either could make a proper wall out of them or you just toss them in a massive pile. Uh, and that's what you've got on at least one edge of uh, the Clos Saint-Marc in Verger. There are two main owners, there is a third, and I'm trying to remember who it is, but the main owners are uh, Jean-Marc Pio and um, uh, the other one, I, I don't think they're actually the owners, but uh, possibly they are, but it's uh, Olivier Lefleur Frere uh, who make the wines from it. Um, and uh, the vines from both, both the Le Verger uh, for um, Jean-Marc Pierre, because he makes two wines, he makes a straight Le Verger and he makes a Le Verger Clos Saint-Marc. And the uh, Le Verger is from 1949. The Clos Saint-Marc is mostly from 1910, but there is, he only has enough for three barrels. 
but there's also some slightly younger vines in there as well. But the, the core of it is 1910. Um, it's an area which is both hot and cold um, because uh, some cool winds uh, circulate around there. Um, uh, I had my tasting of 2019's book to be Jean-Marc Pierre. I turned up and he completely forgotten about it, but fortunately his son uh, was there and his son gave me the tasting. And so in fact, it's not that warm a place to work, but this huge pile of stones that makes up the Merger, that is really intense. Uh, uh, sorry, it gains all the heat and traps the heat and it's totally full of snakes in the uh, top of uh, summer, including some vipers. So it's uh, you know, a little bit hairy working there uh, sometimes. That's the story that Jean-Marc likes to tell in any case. Um, so uh, that is where the Clos Saint-Marc is. Uh, the Jean-Marc Pio wines uh, are kept for a year approximately in barrel and then a few more months um, in uh, stainless steel before, before bottling. Um, and um, yeah, there, one thing which uh, they're about to change but wouldn't have been true in 2015 uh, is that they have tended to use cultured yeasts, but they're moving towards um, natural yeasts. The sons are, are making experiments, which is quite interesting uh, and definitely a good way to go. And it's also one of those domains where a certain amount of it is domain bottled and a certain amount of it is uh, negotiant. Um, so, um, they, along with other members, all, there are three PO domains uh, in Chassain, and all three of them are pretty good. The one I know least well is domains FNL uh, PO. The one I know probably best is domain Paul PO, which is Thierry um, nowadays. And then there is uh, domain Jean PO, or now Jean Marc PO, as I say, with the with the sons in the offing. Um, so. Uh, Peter has told us there about his fichet. It's getting a little bit oxidized. It's still delicious. That's nice to know. The 2002, I mean, it's, it's 18 years old for a village Merceau, so fair enough that it should be showing some age. But um, we, we can be a little bit tolerant of that, but it, but it should be good. Um, so would anybody please, if you are tasting these Chassin Marche from Jean-Marc Pio, I would be delighted if you'd like to put up a comment or two. Um, so Paul's asked why 40-year-old vines without a lowering in yield tends to produce added value. Do we know if the roots of, say, 30 years are still expanding downwards or into new resources? I understand that they are, but I don't have a, a, a sort of a, a scientific scheme of that. Um, so whether it is more the fact that uh, they're producing smaller yields with greater intensity that makes the wines better, or whether the roots are still going down. I think they probably will be if at a slow rate. The advantage of the roots going down is that you do start tapping into new resources, but also you have a much sounder uh, access to the water supply. So let's say you've got um, uh, a young vine with just surface roots, a year with a huge amount of rainfall uh, towards the harvest, it's just gonna suck up all the surface rain uh, much of which will flow off down the hill before it goes down into the, the lower ground um, beneath your vine. So it's going to dilute the grapes more if it's young vines. And equally, in the recent very dry years, uh, obviously you've got a water resource further down. Um, I mean, what we see here in our garden with the, the, the bushes, the trees that we plant, uh, they go in the ground, they do all right the first year or two, and then they really, really struggle for the next five to 10 years. We're wondering if we've done the right thing 
planting them at all because the roots are not forcing their way through a hard pan of clay that we have just uh, you know a meter or so below the surface it's loose clay above and then there is there is something that's much more uh, much tougher uh, more like a potter's clay below that and then they go through and after that they seem to be much healthier color of the leaves changes and they grow again uh, steadily year in year out so that's just what I can observe from my garden, which is not in a vineyard area, but it's broadly speaking going to be the same thing in the vines. So anybody ready to uh, vouchsafe how they're doing with, uh, with their Chassin Morichet? Not so far, don't feel, don't feel forced to, but um, it would help me if you're able to do it. Uh, but I'm expecting something which will be, um, you know, taking on a little bit of yellow colour, um, there's always a certain amount of colour, but a fresh colour in Jomart Pio's wines. It should be fairly full-bodied, but then with a really racy thread of acidity uh, digging deep uh, in the background. I mean, it's one of the wines that I particularly look forward to when I'm tasting with him. Uh, we can probably lose the map now, Ronan, if you're happy with that. I can see the chat more easily if we don't, uh, don't have the maps in place. Do use the question and answer uh, uh, link as well, if you would like to. So um, that's, in theory, two wines, one real and one imagined, or for me, two imagined, that we've had. I should treat myself to another sip of the Boozerol. And our virtual wine tasting shall continue. Just got to find my. Where have I put my? No, nope, I haven't got because I also don't have the map as well. So that means I'll have to go back on the chat and see what's third up. Yes, it's Bruno Claire La Dominode. So this is. Um, I thought it was, I was going to say it's the oldest. It's actually second oldest wine. Because uh, these vines were planted in 1902. If we could have the 70 map. Here we go, you're getting good at this, Renan. I appreciate it. Um, so, um, Seveny Le Bon has got um, the river running down the middle. You can probably see that blue line. If you look at the houses, the village of Seveny, and then a bit above, a bit below. That river, in fact, runs through my garden, another 10 kilometers further up. Uh, when I say runs, uh, this year it struggled to, but we still had a tiny bit of water. Um, Weirdly enough, even though it seems to be one watercourse all the way down, at some point, the water from where we are disappears underground and reappears in the Cote de Nuit. And then it's different um, springs that uh, arrive and replace it and bring it on down to Seveny and then on into um, Bone, where it joins the, uh, the lovely named Bouzes River, which eventually goes on down to join the Seine. So you can see here that you've got the sort of orangey, salmon pink, we'll call it, uh, Premier Cru vineyards uh, either side of the river. And then the flatter ground in between the two is where the village vineyards are. And you can tell that um, people aren't that much fans of all of them because they've got names like Connardies and uh, Planchot and so on, which are not particularly cheerful names. And Ratas as well, the Ratos, I should say. Uh, one of my favourite names in, uh, in Burgundy for vineyards. But you've got the two blocks of Premier Cruz, those on the southeast facing slope, which include uh, Auvergilles here, uh, Serpentier, 
Lavia, Lavia is a favorite of mine. Um, and those are very cheerful vineyards, virtually less, possibly better in white than red, but the others good red vineyards. But then uh, round here, you've got um, steep slopes just below the auto route, the most way, uh, but they're facing more northeast, which maybe in the past wasn't ideal, um, but now is turning out to be a good thing. Uh, and in particular, on this map, you will not find um, Dominoed. Instead, you will see a vineyard called Les Gérons. Uh, and most of Jaron remains as uh, is called, um, maybe called Dominoed, and most people prefer to. And the little bit which is just above that line is only called Jaron and belongs to Domaine Pierre Guillemot. And at the time of um, the appellations being made and lines being drawn, um, Grandfather Guillemot said, No, I don't want to, uh, I'm going to call mine Jaron. I don't mind if other people want to use the dominoed uh, aspect for the rest of it. So you will see if you have the um, book or indeed the app from Sylvain Pitio, you will see uh, on one of the pages um, that it is dominoed on the left or the lower part on that map um, and uh, Gérard above. And what Bruno Clerc chooses to do is because he's got a lot of this uh, and so he doesn't make it um, uh, all as uh, dominoed, and some, not all of it is in old vines. So uh, the younger vines, he sells the Gérard at one price, and his 1902 vines, he sells as, as dominoed. Um, so, and I find this typically a really spectacular wine. Um, it's, on a, it's on a steep slope. Um, the old vines do seem to do something pretty magical here, uh, and, it, and it really works. So, uh, We'll clear that. Um, still not seeing anything from anybody about how any of the wines are tasting. Um, this should be a wine of a reason, reasonable amount of color, uh, a real density. It should still be extremely young. It's 2005, 15 years old. But that's such a great vintage, uh, a hot and dry year, but it didn't get, there were no excess peaks of heat um, that derailed things. And it was a um, maybe a few people started in, in August, but basically it was a September vintage, uh, and that should be should be pretty special. So Sid is enjoying a 05 La Domino from Domaine Pavolo, one of the other holders. Where the Sereni sisters Pavolo Jado have a very good example, and uh, Bruno Claire, plus also as I say, but calling it Gerald is Domaine Pierre Guillemot. Yeah. So um, what I suppose I could do, I haven't, I haven't tasted a Bruno Claire for the uh, 19s yet, uh, but certainly when I tasted the 18s, uh, there was um, a substantial difference between, let's see if I can get my tasting notes up, uh, there was a substantial difference between the dominoed old vines and the Gérald younger vines. So that shouldn't take me a second to do that. Um, Anyway, um, 2005, so I'm still, I'm just occasionally, I had a, a village bone the other night, but otherwise I'm still drinking at the Bourgoyne level rather than the, uh, going, going, going further. Um, 
but uh, it's it's a vintage. It's just going to last pretty much for forever, I reckon. Um, yeah, no, I I, I did have a a, uh, a clear preference uh, for the uh, extremely powerful old vine 2018 Domino over slightly younger Les Jarons. Good. So someone's mentioned it's uh, surprisingly, um, surprisingly approachable for 05. As you say, the color is quite young. Yeah. Right. I can uh, offer you no more on that particular wine for the here and now. Except maybe we can talk about how long can you keep the vines. So your choices are when you've got an older vineyard and it's degenerating to some extent, do you choose to, obviously you want to rip out the, the dead vines. Do you choose just to leave that space free or do you choose to replant what they call repicage? Do you replant an individual young vine, which will struggle a little bit to establish itself, but it'll get there in due course. And there are two schools of thought some people just leave it and accept that there are, there's, there's less planted and knowing that at some point or other in the not too distant future, they're going to have to rip it out um, uh, and start afresh. Others, uh, to try to keep things running as long as they can, they will replant younger vines. Um, so then you have a second choice to make. Do you pick in two different times and go through and pick all the younger vines, the rapicage vines, and then come back and pick the old vines? or do you mix them in together? You still talk about the, the vineyard age. So um, I'm sure that that dominode uh, is gonna have a proportion of younger vines in there, but it sh should still be easily enough of the old vines surviving. Um, but you sometimes lose, in the past you lost maybe 1%, 1 to 2% a year, which would mean over a hundred years, uh, you know, you might not have all that many of the really ancient vines left. And uh, in the case of Arnaud Ants, Merceau, Sauve Duclair, it is really down to individual plants that have survived uh, rather than um, uh, masses. But those plants, it's obvious to see what they are. Uh, and in any case, they're given little tags and that wine is made just from those individual plants. Um, <clears throat> now we have further problems and I'll come to that a little bit later on with uh, why the vines are dying young. Um, good, okay. Uh, shall we move to wine four? Uh, it's another Bruno with a name beginning CLA, but the Bruno Clavelier this time. Um, I'm here to tell you that I, I've just learned that he has stood down from being the coach of the Nuit Saint-Georges rugby team, a very good rugby player himself. But he got Nuit Saint-Georges uh, promoted to uh, a division above last year. And now it means they're in the same division as Bone. And they had the, the needle local derby uh, in October. And it was 22-20 in favour of Nuit Saint-Georges. Since the city is only about uh, uh, a little bit more than a tenth of the size of Bone, is, uh, is great work for Nuit Saint-Georges. Um, but apparently... Um, they are struggling a bit this year simply because it's not the players aren't good, but they are on the whole smaller in stature than most of the other teams that they are playing against physically. Uh, sorry for that uh, little diversion. Um, so here we've got 
Um, slightly younger vines, but 1928, so nonetheless, they've had their 90th birthday. Um, and La Combe Poulet is just above. Um, ah, right, good. Everybody's uh, giving us a note on that. Um, we've got the Vine Romanée map now. So um, let me find where my boulet is got to. Um, here we are the brulee and here's the con brulee. So uh, let's annotate that. Um, this little bit here is the con brulee and uh, below that is two parts of uh, the premier crew brulee which are either side of the road that's down in the dip. So if you're on this side here you're sort of north facing, if you're that side there you're south facing. Some people have bits of both. And then just above it uh, is the Combe Brule uh, vineyards of um, Bruno Clavelier. And he, the vineyard even uh, above that, uh, in fact, Combe Brule there is, ah, okay. Um, that's actually marked as Premier Cru on this map. So I've got a bit of homework to do. Um, uh, and he's also got those Aubeaumont above that. So I think, in fact, he, I'm gonna redo this, kill those. Um, I think actually uh, he's just there in his Combat Brule uh, village vineyard and he's had to cover that in electric fence because wild boar come down out of the valley and out of the forest and eat his grapes here and uh, um, he did tell me that one year he saw the extraordinary sight of mother boar and her piglets trotting up to the vineyard and they saw the electric fence and mother boar uh, launched herself at the fence, lay down over the wires and allowed the piglets to walk over her into the vineyard so that they could eat the grapes. And she, she took one for the team as it were, uh, and then got off again, but she knew it wouldn't kill her. It was just very unpleasant. Uh, slightly extraordinary story. Um, anyway, so that's where his vines are. He is biodynamic, um, really, one of the ultra meticulous people in the vineyards. Uh, he has an extraordinary understanding of the geology below, and he's got stones from all his uh, vines uh, in, in the cellar underground. And the funny thing um, that's ar arrived in the last two, three years with global warming is that brûlé, so it means burnt, of course, in French, but uh, they have these big stones with quite a lot of flint in them and you're getting us uh, the aromatics of sort of burnt stones almost in these vines these days. And he says it's the same when he's um, trying to dig a hole to uh, plant a new vine um, to replace a dead one. Uh, that's exactly the smell that he gets out of the vineyards, particularly in Brulee, but also a little bit in the Combe Brulee as well. So, um, <laughs> right, everybody's saying glorious nose on Cavalier. Uh, not masses of bone character on the palette, uh, but uh, yes, he picks quite early as well uh, and then uses lots of whole bunch. So when the wines are still quite young, um, what vintage? Well, okay, 2010, so that should have, uh, should have moved on quite nicely. Um, uh, but when, um, um, uh, when they're young, you tend to see the vinification a little bit more uh, than normal. Um, so we've got a few comments here. So 
Uh, Ian, I assume that you'll notice about the Pavlo, black fruit on the nose, long finish, absolutely. Uh, but that's drinking beautifully, that 2005 now, but will do for years and years ahead to come. Um, Robin, the firm tannins, deep colour, I'm guessing that that's also La Domino. Um, and then we've got uh, uh, the glorious nose from, from Edward on the Bruno Clavelier. Ian's less, less, um, less convinced, uh, I regret, but he's jumped ahead as well. So, uh, so we'll see where we get to. Um, good. Um, I'm another sip of my boozerol just to keep myself assured. We too can jump ahead to Alain Hulot-Nola, obviously not Alain anymore, he's grandfather of the current generation. Um, uh, may well still be still be around, I'm not so sure, but he hasn't been making wines for a long time. It has been his um, uh, grandson, Charles Van Knet, who's been making them for the best part of 10 years now, um, but still in the same style. So they're largely speaking destemmed. Uh, Charles is one of the leaders of the, sort of the younger generation, but he hasn't gone off in, in sort of totally trendy, cutting edge directions the way that Charles Lachaud has. He sticks to vines trained at normal height, doesn't do much in the way of, um, he doesn't do the whole bunch. Um, it's, it's, everything is just a little bit more um, normal, but he's got great vineyards that are very well run. And uh, he obviously has uh, green fingers, as they say, and a sensitive hand in the winery, because I think his wines have been exceptionally stylish of late. Ian says he's jumped ahead. And, uh, and he's having a great time with this wine, which is also 2010, which is exciting. I'm looking forward to getting that when my samples do arrive because the vines were exactly 100 years old in 2010. Quite a lot of the Hudelot Noana holdings uh, are particularly old. And, uh, and so um, this plant of 1910, I think either the Richebourg or the uh, Romane Saint-Vivant is also uh, very nearly as old as that. Um, he's not in the very best part of Suchot, uh, so he's he's down towards the bottom end here, but um, right at the bottom there, even though it may not be ideal, um, the vines are fairly even, There isn't, whereas th not at the very top, sorry I started that line too early, otherwise there is a definite dip in the middle. Um, so that, particularly around where this road goes. There's a definite dip in the middle. Not all the vines, most of the vineyards run from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. Uh, a few of them do run, particularly at the top, they do run up and down. So um, uh, on the contour east-west as opposed to north-south. But if you are north-south, then you start north-facing, you dip right down in the middle and you come up to south-facing at the other end. Uh, so uh, he's down here, not quite right at the bottom, but there it is much more even, you don't have the same dip. But it's because of this dip that um, Suchot is not classified as Grand Cru. Some people feel it should be. You can see it's surrounded by Grand Cru, uh, the Echezo family on one side and Richebourg and Romain Saint-Vivant on the other side. Um, there's actually a little bit at the top, which historically was called uh, Grand Suchot, Great Suchot, and um, Charles Lachaud has got permission to go back to the that name for his labels. Um, anyway, that's the story. 
Um, please keep your comments coming if you are enjoying it and drinking it. Um, so uh, Aidan's asked what are the main differences that characterize Suchot's other than the dip? The way I describe this vineyard, it, because it isn't my absolute favorite amongst the Premier Cruz uh, of Vaume Romanet, there are so many great ones, and it's a little bit, uh, it's less intense in many ways, and it's disconcerting because you start, it, it tends not to be the deepest color. You start with a very fine bouquet, you put it in your mouth, you get a lovely classical fruit, and then it disappears on you. Um, and you think, oh, well, I'm entirely a bit disappointed by that. And then just as you're sort of turning away and ready to move on to another wine, it all comes back again. So it's as if the, the wine itself had this same dip and you begin with the flavor up on one edge and it goes down into the dip and you're missing it and then up it comes again. I mean, that's, it's, it's a sort of conceit of mine, if you like, but that's some source of how I think about it. Having said which, um, at, um, even in, before Charles Lachaud, his father, Pascal Lachaud, he always used to serve the uh, Suchot after the Echezo. Uh, so he'd serve it after a Grand Cru, thinking it was the final wine, and his son does the same. Um, but, uh, you know, I like the Bruno Clavelier wines because there is an energy and a, a charm about them. Uh, but I agree, it's perhaps even more on the bouquet than in the palette. And um, certainly, I think, uh, Alain Udlonola, I found occasionally his grandfather's wines were just a tiny bit, um, well, they're certainly very elegant, but they were occasionally a little bit slight, if you see what I mean. They didn't quite have the depth and volume of um, fruit that I was hoping for. Um, I didn't actually ever work with them, so I didn't, it's not a domain I used to go and uh, taste every year. But in Charles, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, or Charles van Kennet, I should say, in his time, the wines do seem to be more consistent and have a greater depth of fruit. And I think it's pretty, pretty exciting domain to be part of. Uh, he's also one of those who does a few um, negotiation cuvées as well for some markets. Okay, any, any more on that particular wine to ask about? No, all happy? myself to another little, pour myself another small sip of Bouzeron. I got myself a red as well, but I didn't. Last wine, our friends at Domaine de la Vougeray, and uh, we have looked at their wines on other occasions. I believe we had the Bon Mar. This is probably my favorite of their wines. They do make two or three barrels of Musigny, which is even grander. Can we skip to the next uh, map, please, Renan? Um, and I love the Bon Mar that we had the other day, but it's the Charme Chambertin Les Mazoyères, which uh, really does it for me. So um, Charme Chambertin starts just below Chambertin, goes all the way along the main road and stops here and comes around there. But Mazoyère Chambertin may also be called Charme. And until recently, most people did call it Charme because it's a nicer sounding name. And you can see, uh, it's slightly the bigger of the two, and also it dips down to the main road below, which everybody says this is a nonsense. How can you have a Grand Cru that goes that further down? But there is some sort of logic to it, because here you can see um, you have a little uh, comble, comme, comme de Grisard, um, 
And that is A, letting some cool air down from the hills above, but B, in times gone past, there would have been a watercourse there, and it's brought down the interesting soils much lower down. So in the same way that um, here, you've, you've got, oh, let's just get rid of all that, you've got what, what they call the cone de dejection, the alluvial fan coming out of the big Combe de Lavo, and it's spreading the interesting soil well below the main road. So that explains why you can have village wine down here. Uh, so on a smaller basis, you've got this small one, which again is spreading the smart stuff a bit further down to here. And if you look at the geological map, you will see that there's a soil in Latricia Chambertin, which continues down from um, and includes this little section at the bottom end there. So it's probably legitimate. Well, somewhere between possibly and probably, <laughs> we can insist on it. Now, Sham Chambertin, what does that tell us? That suggests be luscious and gorgeous and rich, uh, and it so often feels like that. I, I get a sort of strawberries and cream or raspberries and cream impression. Uh, that's a, the feeling I get with a young Sham Chambertin. And of course, many Mesoyers were sold as Sham. Um, and Yet when I taste the Mesoyer, which is named to be Mesoyer, it's quite different. Uh, we can't see the contours well enough on this map, but Mesoyer is on it just a little bit. I mean, we're only talking about sort of five or 10 meters higher, but the road, the main road does go up a bit there. And so does the Route des Grands Cru uh, that um, uh, runs through, that uh, runs through on the sign here. Uh, you know, if you're walking or bicycling, there is definitely a, uh, a slight incline up. And so it does seem to attract a bit more cool air. There are probably more stones in the soil in this part as well. And I do get a little bit more of a mineral crunch in a classic Mazoyer. So um, two people are now taking the making the choice of offering a Cham Chambertin, Les Mazoyer for one of them, and Au Mazoyer for the other one. Um, Les Mazoyer, I think it's the Vougeret uh, bottle, um, and Au Mazoyer is Christophe Rumier. Um, and uh, they're doing it because people are used to the concept of charm, and so they're sticking with that, but they want to tell people that their holding is in Mazoyer. And here I can give you all sorts of details because they're, they're very good at on this, uh, Mine Le Vougeret. Uh, I know it's planted in 1901-1902, so half one year and then finished off the following year. So we're now 120 years old, can you believe? Um, it still gives perfectly good yields in not massive. In 2009, which was a fairly generous uh, harvest, it was only 28 hectolitres a hectare, but that's still enough to be worth having. Um, it was picked on the 12th of September, which was a root day for you biodynamicists. Uh, sufficiently healthy crop that they really didn't have to do any sorting. 50% um, was whole bunch. Nowadays, it'd be a higher proportion than that. Um, and um, uh, do they have, they told me what the, uh, I don't have the, uh, yes, 70% new barrels. So nowadays, the current vintage would be more like 70, 80% whole bunch and just 50% new barrels. So they would have turned the two things around. Um, and then that would have been a, a, an 18 months aging. It was bottled in March of 2011. Um, and they have a, um, 
this the vintage that you those of you have it are tasting is 2009 so this would have been in the period of Pierre Vincent so it would have been a pretty light hand with not too much punching down rather more of the pumping over um, and uh, um, just trying to make a wine of finesse and elegance the whole bunches of course give it that lifted feeling but there is always a generosity of fruit almost a sucrosity about this wine year in year out uh, which makes it an absolute winner. And I think both Ian and Robin there on the chat are, are mentioning uh, uh, that they're finding exactly that in the wine. I wish I could be there, uh, have it in front of me as well. So I think, I hope you'll feel that those of you who've got the wines, you've got a pretty good selection out of the old vines. Let me just reflect a little bit more on um, the, the, the sort of the timeline and what it means, because it isn't just the age of the vines, it's also the fact that old vines will have been planted at a time when the raw material would have been different. So uh, clones only came on the scene in the 1950s. Uh, typically, um, the, the first clones were made out of um, cuttings from uh, the Ponceau vineyards and in the mid 50s I won't give away his exact birth year but um, Mrs Ponceau was still working in the vineyards making the cuttings which were going to be used to generate the clones uh, during the day and she gave birth to Laurent Ponceau in, uh, that evening so uh, you know they like to they like to keep working to the last minute uh, in, in in Burgundy so then those uh, people who make wine in California New Zealand Australia Many of them will talk about Dijon clones, uh, things like clone uh, 111115 in particular. Uh, and then after that, what I call the Boeing clones with numbers like 666, 777. Those have been grown uh, or taken forwards um, in and around Dijon uh, from original cuttings uh, in mostly the Cote de Nuit. Uh, there are various other options in clones as well. But any of the vines we're talking about would have been natural, what they call massal selection. That means if you wanted to plant something uh, new, you would take a cutting from a vineyard, a vine that you got planted, you go through your vines, you'd look at which ones were looking healthy, and uh, you would then take cuttings from those and propagate them and plant up your next bit of vineyard from there. Now, effectively, what a clone is, it's not something which has been genetically modified or in other way, in any other way artificially made, but it is just a super intense selection. So they took cuttings from the Ponceau vineyards of vines which were healthy and still doing well at an advanced age. They put them in the ground, they took lots of cuttings, and they propagated those cuttings, and then they took the best ones, and they propagated those, and then they took the best ones, and they propagated those, and so on, until they've got something which is uh, sort of a stable population uh, of um, sort of Repropagated many times over, and then uh, something which stayed stable showed no viruses, and that they gave a number to rather than a name, and there was your new clone. Well, the only problem was that people tended to plant clones a little bit. They would take one clone and just plant that, whereas the best solution is to plant multiple clones if you want to go in that direction. Also, this clonal period from the late 50s through the 70s and 80s was a period in which people were more typically planting in order to get volume rather than to get quality. So nowadays people with 
um, 50 year old, 40, 50, 60 year old vines have often got clones which uh, are not particularly suited to what we have today. And they would perhaps have planted them on um, both the clone itself and the rootstock. They might select something that was early ripening because it was a struggle to ripen Pinot Noir and Burgundy in those days. And as a result of that, uh, you now have highly productive clones which ripen very early and the last thing you want is early ripening these days. Uh, so you have to rethink it. Also, um, the, I don't know necessarily what the old uh, rootstock would have been. Uh, many of these rootstocks were developed, uh, particularly by Monsieur Coudert, uh, wherever you see C at the end. Uh, so 161 49C, the C refers to Coudert. Uh, uh, he was one of the major propagators of different rootstocks back in the 1880s. Um, but probably in, in the sort of pre-Second World War times, you may or may not know what rootstock you had got. Or there was a brilliant one called Riparia Gloire, uh, but unfortunately it doesn't like active limestone very much and it is also quite early. But the quality was superb. Um, we don't necessarily know what the rootstocks were in these old vines, but they tended to be uh, very good ones, very successful ones. Then a bit in the 50s, but especially in the 70s, you began to get a rootstock called SO4, um, which was very productive, very fertile, gave big fat grapes, just what people wanted then. And there are two snags, A, the quality was very poor, and B, these particular um, vines have um, collapsed too early. So at 50 plus years, 40 years even, they start degenerating and you have to rip them out. So there's not that much SO4 left. And in fact, there's been a period in which people have left the old vines in the ground and pulled out their SO4 period uh, vines. So after that, you might choose 3309, um, C again, I think it is, um, if you don't have too much active limestone, so your lower vineyards, or the smart one to go for, everybody went for it because it's not too productive. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's faithful, it does a great job, high quality, it was 161.49c. And now horror of horrors, beginning 10 or 15 years ago, we're getting much worse in these last three hot vintages. 161.49c is just failing, it's no longer doing a job, the leaves are struggling, you're not getting any bunches of grapes or very few, uh, it's a total disaster. And people are having to rip out all their younger vines now, what's interesting is if you have old vines on 161 49C, they're doing absolutely fine because the roots had already got down far enough that they're continuing to get stuff from below and continuing to reach the water table. It's the ones which are more recently planted. Um, even uh, Antoine Chobar's just ripping out some Marseille Genevrier planted in 2017 because you can already see it's gonna fail. And if you ripped it out this soon before any root system has really grown, you can actually replant something else quickly without having to leave it fallow. So, uh, but it's a real, real struggle. And um, to begin with, when this rootstock was failing a little bit, people would replant the ones that failed. The next year, they'd have to replant double that amount. And now they're just saying, there's no point in this, we're just gonna have to take the whole thing out. So it's, it's a big issue. It's not, it's not going to affect the quality of the wines um, because they're not really producing any grapes anymore. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, a real struggle for the producers and 
an annoyance. Uh, it's psychologically bad for them because they made this decision to plant it and then they realize they've made a wrong decision and they may have planted this rootstock over 20, 30 years. So it's really difficult for people who've done that. Plus, of course, it's a financial cost to them. Um, it won't affect our drinking enjoyment, but it does affect the morale of producers at the moment. So um, we've, we've done our hour. I shall certainly welcome many questions. Uh, Old time, Jasper. Right this evening without me being able to talk you through the actual wines as they really are. Um, I see that uh, you've all stayed with me. Thank you for that. Um, Ronan, do you have a comment or would you like to put up a... I've put up the poll, I think we're ready. Poll, yeah. I don't know how many people did have the wines tonight, so it may be fairly short, but do put the poll up. So those of you who do have it, uh, vote, or if you feel like voting anyway on the concept behind the wines, I don't see why you shouldn't do that. Uh, we'll just leave it up there for a few more seconds while I read through Paul and Robin's uh, longer chats and prepare an answer on those. Okay, so I hope you voted. Three, two, one. We can take that down and Ronan can give us the answers. Uh, we got one vote for Fichet that we didn't have his wine. Uh, Jean-Marc Pio didn't trouble the scorers. Bruno Claire, Bruno Clavelier. Uh, hello, hello. We got Bruno Clavelier up twice there for some reason, Ronan. We, what we don't have, the second one of those should be um, Hulonola. Okay. Wine five. I don't know, I'm guessing, I don't know whether or not that's affected people's votes, but the easy winner is Domaine Le Bougeret, So, So we'll leave it at that, we won't worry about it. Um, right, so uh, Paul very kindly, Paul Brakefield very kindly has given a technical um, definition of what a clone is. Thank you for that, because I'm not a scientist. Um, so, but it does conform, broadly speaking, to what I said in layman's terms, as you're getting near, uh, as near as you can, identical copies. Um, and Robin is saying that the old lines are still around. Um, they're atypically good, yes, they're miraculously successful, not, not typical of their age group. Well, that's, that's right, in the same way that, well, no, it's not quite in the same way that uh, all old people, uh, they must have done well to have got there, but of course some old people are, are quite feeble and others are showing a huge amount of energy. Um, it may also be, Robin, that those very old vines, they may have been overproductive when they were young. Uh, we don't know, but that's something that you have to, uh, um, Worry about um, Ian. You you had uh, you had two votes. I'm sorry, I just seen your comment, but uh, we've passed by that stage. Grand. Um, well, I think that covers our discussion for tonight. Uh, what have we got coming up in the future? We're going to look at all the producers, not all of them, but six producers of Grands Echaussee, and I'll be very upset if my wines don't come for that. We're going to look at the various um, vineyards which were created or considered to be tete de cuvee, top end wines in the 19th century, but didn't make it to Grand Cru. So we'll, we'll have a, a go at those. Um, and we will, December, I've got three which are planned. One is me talking about sort of ideal wines loosely speaking burgundy based, but I'm going to have a couple of interlopers based around Chardonnay and Pinot Noir nonetheless. Um, so that's uh, early in December. 
And then I'm doing two double headers with our wonderful friend, Jane Anson. One is Bordeaux against, in inverted commas, against Burgundy, uh, when we'll choose one white and two reds each, a sort of a grand red and a lesser red, uh, and just favorite wines of ours and uh, in a friendly way. We will, we will argue for our causes. And then Jane and I will also do one with wines outside our regions when we'll both choose three of our favorites, which are not Burgundy or Bordeaux. So thank you all for listening in. Um, please come again. And uh, yeah, we will uh, endeavor to keep you amused and entertained in the weeks and I fear months to come. Thank you. And thank you, Ronan. Thank you, Jasper. See you again soon. Yeah, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.